As I said, we'll be focusing on verses 1 to 12, which primarily deals with the idea of how a minister of the gospel should be um, in pleasing God and in loving God's people. My hope is that we would encourage and love and pray for um, men that are as such, and also that we would have the ability to discern those who aren't. So, in seeing clearly what the scriptures convey of how Paul's Timothy and Sylvanus were, and what a gospel-believing minister should be doing, we also have the ability to see clearly what it shouldn't be by implication. So those are the two um, major goals for us in reflecting upon it, to think about how we need to pray and support those men who do live such a lifestyle, and to have a clear eye to see and to point out those who aren't. I'm going to try to do this uh, by God's grace with three major points. Um, well, two major points and a third exhortation. The two points, um, first one being one who seeks God, um, one who seeks to please God, which is one characteristic of a minister of the gospel. And the second major point is one who seeks to love God's people. I'm going to look at three things. Within the first point, the courage and the boldness of the apostles and his companions, the purity of their motives, and also the God-centered methodologies and methods that they would have been using. So let's start and jump right into it. The first, looking at the courage and the boldness that they would have had. If you look at verses 2, or let me start from verse 1 and go to verse 2, it says... For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. The word boldness here, well, is boldness in um, the KJV. We don't use the KJV. Um, but the word boldness that is being used there in Greek is, I'm hoping I'm not um, destroying the word, but paresi ad zomai. I'm not sure if that's how the Greek sounds, but that's how I told me to pronounce it. Um, it means to be frank in utterance, to speak boldly or freely. Um, the apostles were not men who would have pussyfooted around or been on eggshells about the speech they had in proclaiming the gospel. The context that they were in, it would have been wise for them to do so, but they were not. And we as believers who see men and know of men who speak the gospel clearly, who speak the doctrine of God without compromise, should be praying for these men. Because in our culture, we're, at least in the Western culture, where ideas and speech are becoming more and more seen as an aggressive act, as something that is actually harming people physically, the gospel is becoming ever more difficult to preach in our context. And for people who are not in the West, it is already something that one could die for. But I want to think about what, in our context, bold speaking could look like. First, by looking at the example of what people in the West seem to be afraid to speak about. First, I'm going to look at something that, in our context, the conservative, reformed context, may not be that big of a deal, but in the body of evangelical world, seems to be something that's an issue. Just the exclusivity of the gospel itself. Um, we would have known in a few years ago, Joel Osteen was on, I think it was Larry King Live, where he was asked about 
his experience with Hinduism and going to different countries and whether or not these people would be saved. And his answer is that he didn't know. And from his understanding, seeing the goodness of the people's heart, you know, he's not there to judge. He believes that God loves everybody. Um, this to us seems to be fairly blatantly foolishness. Um, we would not think that that is anything controversial to speak about. But this man thought it was necessary to be ashamed of the gospel. Another context was with um, the T.D. Jakes character who said he was evolving on the issue of homosexuality. This is a little more controversial in the West. Um, I don't think that much within conservative circles, but it's becoming more controversial. The whole idea that homosexuality itself is sinful. That is something that if you say it now, people don't even think in those categories. Sinfulness and depravity and perverseness. These are offensive words to say and to preach and to, to even have a normal conversation. For our context though, getting a little closer to home, issues like complementarianism, the understanding of men and women and the rules and the God-given glory of them, the issue of leadership in the church, having men who lead the church and not afraid to say, well, uh, female pastors are oxymoron. And these are things that are currently, even within more conservative circles, becoming issues today. And even more so, um, the issue of the whole social gospel problem and diversity within the church. I'm not, I'm not going into detail, but these are things that we're currently dealing with in our context, the Western context. I'm grateful that for the most part in Barbados, we don't necessarily have to battle with the social gospel issue in terms of how we preach it here. But having a clear understanding of the exclusivity of the gospel and other more simple things that might not necessarily be conservative issues does seem sadly to be a problem in Barbados. And we need to be grateful for our church. We need to be grateful for a church that are like-minded in having men who are willing to preach the gospel clearly and unashamedly, who are able to expound the doctrines of grace, expound the doctrines of the scriptures without feeling as if they need to fear or be ashamed of it. And this was in the context, at least with Paul, in the context of persecution. We, blessedly, in Barbados, um, Pastor John in particular, because he's the pastor here, doesn't necessarily have to deal with uh, a government that scrutinizes everything that is said by him. But we still need to be grateful for having such a pastor. We still need to be grateful for having such words being spoken clearly. Um, no one to bring up sore sermons, but no sermon is sore because they're, they're great. But I remember when the pastor was preaching on the issue of slavery, for example. Now, we can all say he admitted himself. We can all see why that would be a very touchy thing, with, even in the Barbadian context, as a white man preaching to black people. To preach about that, that's a fact. But to, to, to look at the word of God and to see its gloriousness and to understand that what it says is true, what it says, whether or not the world thinks is offensive, is not something to be ashamed of. We need to be encouraged by men and women um, within their context who are willing to speak about it, and for men who are pastors and preachers to preach from the pulpit unashamedly about it. Secondly, we look at the motives of the apostles and his companions, and what the motives of a true gospel-believing minister should be. Look at verses 3 and 4. It goes on to speak about, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity, or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God, so, so to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. Now, there are three things he brought up. He said, error, impurity, and attempt to deceive. I'm going to look at the impurity part first for a second. 
the apostles, um, and Paul in particular in this particular context, is saying of himself that his motives for preaching the word of God was not impure. It didn't come from a place of, as the pastor just mentioned one of them, seeking glory for himself. There are other motives that the Bible speaks about with false preachers. We can look at 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 2-14 to 14, that speak of those who are adulterous, who use their authority in preaching. Apparently this was a common practice among the occult and philosophers in the day to use their status as orators to have sex with a lot of women. This is something that's actually known. Greed, which is something that we can relate to as well, where people seeing the money that follows with being a man of God as it were, how the money follows when they lay the feet as the apostles as it were. And then there are people who simply seek to deceive people. Um, Acts chapter 20 verses 30 speaks about the men who simply seek to draw men away. Now, these people are clearly just wicked. They don't necessarily, which is interesting to me, um, that we have people today who simply see the structure and the purpose of the church and would be so willing to infiltrate it, to destroy it just because. Now, I am not sure if we have historical a historical context where there are many men who fit this, fit this criteria, but the Bible does speak of them who just simply sneak in to just draw men away. And again, we can look at contemporary examples like men who change their name to Dollar. <laughs> just we love I didn't know that until recently that he actually changed his name to Dollar. It wasn't Dollar before. Or the guy who speaks of the, about the billion dollar flow. Our good friend, um, um, Copeland. He's not a good friend. That is me being sarcastic for those who are here in the recording. Um, these, this is something that we actually see today. Where people use the gospel. Prosperity gospel is called to, for pretext for greed. And we as Christians... Um, and in this church, I believe, see these things and kind of kind of dismiss them as wolves in wolf's clothing. We don't really necessarily see these men as sheep in wolf's clothing. To us, it's obvious. Anybody that preaches to you, well, God is the ATM, it seems pretty obvious. But sadly, that is not always the case. People see these men preaching the word of God um, with little sparkles and sprinkles of truth, with the meme, and think that it's somehow truth. And that is not the case. But what we may be able to relate to, what we may be able to relate to are in our own hearts, rather, probably, for us who preach the word of God, and even for us who just know more about the scripture, there is an arrogance that could come from from being on the more conservative side of the aisle. We might not necessarily see money as a big thing, but we would like a name for ourselves. We like being the ones who can speak clearly about something and be known as a person who can speak well. So for ourselves, glory and recognition by people, we might not be greedy for money, but greedy for glory. Um, so when we see men who can demonstrate by their behavior, by their attitudes, who often try to be in the lower seats, who don't come up and want to sit in the, um, in the glorious seats, the front seats, men who often try to avoid being in the spotlight, we can appreciate the humility of these men. Now false humility is no humility, but when we can see a true genuine believer, a preacher, a minister, whose heart is humbled by the gospel, recognizing himself to be a sinner, and deciding that they would preach the gospel not for their own benefit, but to see the church grow, to see men saved, and see God glorified, we need to be praying for these people. Like the nameless people around the world that don't have names, and I don't know if we do so, but we are encouraged to... There's a prayer guide for many people to, in different places of the world to pray for. We need to be serious about doing so. It is not just the 
well, he's passed away now. Um, the R.C. Sproul's or the John MacArthur's or the Paul Washer's or the World of Vody Bauckham's are these good guys. We need to pray for them as well because they have their own heat to deal with. But we need to be praying for the person that is not known, nameless person. We need to understand that the gospel is not spread just by the big names as it were, but by the, the man who is dying right now in some far obscure place that nobody knows about and spreading the gospel to people. Um, we need to be honestly on our knees for these, these types of men. Second point here is when he spoke about it not springing from error. And this is something that is, is necessary to understand because there are some people who I believe are genuine in their hearts. Their motives aren't necessarily evil or wicked. They're not looking out there to be greedy and to get money or to swindle people or to, to take advantage of women or any other thing. They simply have a gospel or ideas about man or about the gospel that are wrong. And thus the way they approach um, preaching, the way they approach ministry is flawed. One of the things we can look at that might be more relevant to the contemporary church is what is known as the seeker-sensitive movement. Um, this idea that we form not just the word of God, but the very church itself and its structures and its ecclesiology. How, that's how the church is, how it does church, like how we come here on a Sunday, how it looks, how it feels. Um, this assumption is mostly based upon the wrong misconception that man is actually seeking after God in a sinful state. Um, there's a long history behind this when it comes to the Pelagian idea of, of the will of man and the nature of man. This idea that the people out there who just really want God, they honestly, sincerely just want to know God. And if we as Christians are willing to humble ourselves and just speak in a manner, dress in a manner, sing in a manner, act in a manner, behave in a manner, have our structures and church services in a manner that are just a little more attractive, it would do us a whole lot better to see the church grow. And although we as believers could relate to the desire to see men saved, we still need to understand that the metrics that we use for faithfulness to God is not necessarily the increase in church membership. We do want to see the church increase, and we should be concerned if it is that a church is dying. But the first thing that we look at is not necessarily how do we find a new program or methodology that we think of to have a more effective outcome. But we try to see what the Bible says and to continue to faithfully do what the Bible says. And if we are faithfully doing what the scriptures say, that is the method that we should use. This comes down to the third point, when it comes to the, the God-centered methods that they would have been looking at, which is basically rooted in what I was just speaking about. The idea that God, the Holy Spirit within the gospel, preached to men is enough. All we have to do as believers, all we need to do to see the church grow is faithfully preach the word of God. Full stop. It is not very attractive or fancy. It doesn't sound very intellectual just to say, well, just preach the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and you will see an increase in church and you see people's hearts change and their lives change. It doesn't sound attractive. It is not something that the world would see as innovative. And we don't seek any church to be innovative. Just for our own edification as a church, for us to see the historical context and to understand where some of this thinking that have come from. I'm not sure how many of us know about Charles Finney, which is seen as the modern father of what is called the Alder Call movement or the, the Secretive movement. He was a guy in the 1800s. Um, was a part, he was a revivalist, which was a part of what was called the Second Great Awakening. And he had a very man-centered 
understanding of ministry. When that came from his understanding of the nature of man, he would have explicitly said that man doesn't necessarily have an inherent sinful nature. Um, so his understanding was as such. But within the Barbadian context, um, we have seen within the Barbadian context uh, both the less overt what is called, um, I'm trying to look for the correct word so I don't misquote, but what is called the felt needs, yeah, I think that is what I believe is called, the felt needs approach, where the sermons are preached not necessarily, like, there are a lot of sermon series dealing with family and a lot of social issues, which are beneficial. I, I mean, when we preach about family and stuff like that, that is fine. But when it is that we seek to attract the church by saying things like, come to God and your marriage will work better, or come to God and your finances will be better. Now, the Bible does have principles about handling finances, it does have principles that would benefit all of us to follow if it is that we do them when it comes to marriage. But going about evangelism or church growth in such a manner, just dealing with people's felt needs, but not getting to the root that they're sinners and they need a savior is not what the Bible recommends. We see something, um, it was in Barbados recently, in part world, which is, which is more extreme, where there was, this is not to be insulting or to be belittling, but it was mainly, it was a circus type event. Um, and they explicitly deserve for it to be like such. They, they explicitly would have said that they deserve for it to be as attractive as possible. So there were literally people riding bicycles, juggling stuff, um, and this is not to make fun of them. I would have met one of the guys that was a part of the the management team, and he was in tears, talking about how he deserved to see people come to salvation. Now he was very, very misguided, but he was sincere. But again, coming back to the God-centered methodology, we as believers, as ministers, don't have the prerogative to say what we think is most effective. The word of God directs what is most effective. And all that is deserved is that we faithfully exposit the word of God. Another example that was pointed out to me by my sister at the time on Facebook was where one of the churches, I won't call the name, would have sought to attract people, not telling them that it was the evangelistic crusade, but telling them to come um, and $20,000 of prizes would be given out. So people would have seen this, or they were told to call a particular number, and if they called the number, they may be able to benefit from it, and then they were directed to come to this crusade, which they thought was just probably to receive the benefits from making the call, but then would have been hearing what I hope was the gospel. Um, again, you can see that the organizers of it, by the way, the person who was the head of that particular denomination said that it was wrong, he didn't support it, but they went ahead and did it anyways, so just to make it clear, just in case we know what we're talking about, but the, the lead denomination said that was wrong, but Whoever was managing it thought to themselves that if it is that I could just get them there to hear the gospel, whatever means I use was justifiable. And this pragmatic, utilitarian type of thinking is attractive. I understand it. I, I, I could see why we as believers would try to do all we can to see somebody come inside the church to hear the gospel. But again, it's not a prerogative to, to do so. So when it is that we see brothers and sisters in Christ preaching the gospel, when it is that we see ministers with their small churches, Sunday after Sunday, just preaching the word of God, we need not think little of them. We need not think that they're not doing enough because they're doing what the Bible asks them to do. And my encouragement to the pastor and to those who seek pastoral ministry is not to be discouraged when it is that you are faithfully 
trotting through the word of God and not seeing what one would presume to be the benefits of it. We are asked to faithfully preach the word of God. God is the one who determines whether or not we are being successful. The metrics that we use are not the metric the world uses. The world looks for statistics and numbers and increase. We look for the veracity of the word. We look for the, the faithfulness of the word being proclaimed and preached. And we need to pray consistently for men and women who do this. Because I know of men who do this consistently and may not necessarily see the growth that they're looking for. And it can be discouraging when it is that you see a man or a woman or whoever else that it is, to be honest, um, have a church plant and have, you know, triple digits, you know, in a year, increasing in church membership. We could have the inclination, and none of us is far from it, to be honest. We could have the inclination to think that we could learn something from that type of methodology. So we need to pray that God would keep our hearts as a church faithful in our own context, not to fall victim to that. Prayerfully, we don't need to, but if it is that it comes to that, that we would be faithful, even if it is, it doesn't necessarily mean immediate church growth. Secondly, second point, one who loves God's people. Now, the scriptures would have described Paul as being or him describing himself rather as being like a mother nursing. You could see in verses seven and eight where it reads But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you are but because you had become very dear to us. When it is that we look at a minister of God, when we look at a minister of the gospel, they're not just defined as people who speak accurate words. They're not just defined as people who can speak well and speak accurately. There's an intense personal affection for the people to whom they minister. It's not only that they share a message, but they share themselves. It's not just information, but intimacy. When it is that we have a pastor or we see a minister, when we experience in ourselves someone who seeks to embrace and to love us as individuals. And when Paul speaks here, there's a part where he speaks about to each of you, where it is emphatic that it's not simply this broad, but like I preached our congregation. There's this sense that Paul knew specific people. He desired to speak to them perfectly. He desired to know who they were and to minister to them in any way he possibly could. So when it is that we as believers in a church benefit in our local assembly from the type of pastoral ministry that there's a loving, affectionate desire to, to know and to be with the believers, we should be grateful for that. We should be encouraged by that. We should pray to see that more in our pastors and our ministers and when we do receive it we need to be thankful for it because that is not normative now again going back to the whole church growth thing nothing wrong with big churches but and I, could, I hope that this church grows a billion but the point is that when it is that many of these mega church models that we see I would have seen some posts where many of the people would have never met their pastor before personally they never saw them, like personally. They would see them when they go to church and send out the podium, but they, they have never shook the man's hand. Never saw him personally. Um, 
Now, obviously, different church models do different things, but the point is here that we should expect from our ministers um, not just this this high and mighty on a pedestal far away, because there, there's a sense in which the minister is supposed to speak in a, with an authority that is transcendent, that we, we do feel a distance when he's speaking with a robust authority, the word of God. But at the same time, there clearly here is being seen a... Uh, uh, the type of love and intimacy that can only be can only happen from personal relationships. This imagery of a mother that is nursing is as intimate as you could get. And this is what the Apostle Paul says of himself and as Sylvanus and of Timothy and what they were to the believers at Thessalonica. Secondly, it was a sacrificial love. It was laborious and wearying the type of ministry that they would have had. When it is that we think in our own context of what it takes for a church to happen, and the pastor that just talked about not calling people father and about instructor and about stuff, and I know he's a humble fellow, so don't feel a sorry way, but I can talk about you at this, at this time. Within our context, a man would have would have seen a need for a church to be planted. His heart was for the church. Um, from my understanding, he would have had. After looking into the 1689 and, and being convicted of it, was looking for like-minded brothers and sisters in Christ. I would have come across Chris. They would have met. You might standing at a coffee shop somewhere. And um, two years later, here we are. But spending a year being vetted as one should be, and then another year in Toronto as a minister before he was sent across here. When we see the, the type of love given in uprooting a family and coming to coming here, we need to, to be grateful to God in our own context for the simple sacrificial love that we have seen in Barbados. And even for our brothers and sisters, um, Pastor Brown, who would have left his own context after, I don't want to say too much years, but I think it was probably over 40 years in the Nazarene church. That is not an easy move to make. When we see men uproot their lives, um, thank God it wasn't in his context finances, but many times finances, to minister the gospel faithfully. These are not small decisions to be made. And many times when we experience love in this way, for some reason human beings are very forgetful and indifferent and we don't tend to appreciate it. We need to appreciate this. We need to appreciate when we say in others, we need to appreciate it um, when we hear it about others and pray for these men, pray for these people. Within the, the context of the apostles, they would have worked night and day so they wouldn't be a burden to someone. Now, <laughs> he would have said he had the right to, and they did. The Bible speaks about providing for uh, ministers, but within his context, he said he wouldn't even try to be a burden, so they worked with their hands as not to be a burden to the believers at Thessalonica. This type of love that we see here for the gospel to be spread, to see Christ shaped in these people, should be encouraging to us. When we see this in the scriptures, when we see what it took for them to spread the gospel, we as believers should be encouraged by it, we should be moved by it, we should be thankful to God that, because we don't just have a, a, a book, but this is a historical faith, that the gospel was spread because of men who sought to sacrifice everything, including their rights. <laughs> because they had a right to be supported by the church, but they chose not to for the sake of the gospel being spread and to not to be a burden to them. Not only that, that they would have been men who spoke accurately, not only that, were they men who were acting in such a manner to be liked personally, 
but they lived lifestyles that were exemplary. I want to exhort us and also warn us, and particularly young men who aspire to pastoral ministry or any sort of ministry, to, to think about this. When we look at verse 10, when Paul speaks of you are witnesses and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. The Bible has a very serious high standard for the lifestyle of ministers, of all believers, but the Bible is explicit about the type of men that should be leading a church. We need to pray for our leaders because the sins that beset many of us are not far from the minds of many pastors. I'm not saying that all of them are the same level as we are, because if that was the case, that would be a serious, serious problem. But the point is that we can't think of these men too loftily. They do struggle with sin. They do have to contend with sin. So when it is that we see a man of God faithfully trodden, whether it be faithfulness to his wife, or whether it be faithfulness to how he leads and loves his children, or faithfulness in how he handles his money as his affairs, when we see this, we need not take that for granted. When we look at church history, or just look at our contemporary church, or even the church in Barbados, where men would have been found in adulterous relationships, and a couple months later was reinstated at another church. This is the reality that we're living in. It is not normal for people to be faithful. It is sad that that is the case within modern evangelicalism, but it seems to be a constant theme, whether it's not that scandal is this scandal. So we need to be grateful if we see faithfulness displayed before us, and we need to be praying for these men. And for those who aspire to be as such, need to be very cautious when it is that they look for the, the ministerial post to recognize the, 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 the call that they're being called to. And it's not just simply about a lifestyle that in the openness before men seems to be faithful. And this is something that I reflect upon as well many times. We have the ability many times, um, or sometimes, not many times, but sometimes to be consistent in our overt appearance to people. Some people are very good at hiding themselves from people. We need to understand that what is being spoken about here is not the exemplary love that that is is seen by people and is witnessed by people, which is which is true. But God is also a witness in this context. In our alone time, when we are by ourselves, we need to be to to, to have the sort of heart and mind that loves God. Not just in the presence of men, but loves God all the time. We need to be praying for our pastors and our ministers that they don't just simply have the energy to smile and to act and to speak godly in our context. But when they're home, their wives, or when they're in the, the closet of their thoughts, to be pure and to be faithful. We need to be on our knees consistently because these things don't come overnight. These things take prayer, these things take spiritual discipline lastly looking at verses 11 and 12, what is all this for why is the apostle and his companions doing this, why are they doing this why is there a faithfulness that they display why are they preaching the gospel trying to use God centered methodologies and having this parental sacrificial love it says in verse 11 4 and 12 For you know how like a father with his children We exhorted each one of you And encouraged you and charged you To walk in a manner worthy of God Who calls you into his own kingdom And glory We as the people under these ministers Have an obligation 
Um, not just because they do it, but because God has called us in His kingdom and into His glory. The reason that the apostles do what they did, or did what they did, and the reason that we do what we do, all culminate in Christ. All find its, its center and its ground in Christ. The motivation for the apostle doing this, loving these people in the manner that they did, wasn't simply because he liked being a martyr or, or liked feeling pain or sacrificing money or having to deal with the, the issues of being consistent in his life and his, in his thought life, but because he had a love for God. He had a desire to please God, as was said earlier. The center of both the minister's heart and the reason for the biblical response in living a life worthy of the gospel, a life worthy of God because we're called to the kingdom, is centered in the gospel and Jesus Christ. When we're doing all of this, it is easy as a church and as people to be off-center. And remember us having a conversation in the past, in the past about this. We don't simply want to be the doctrinal church. The church that speaks accurately. We don't simply want to even be the church that people are known for living good lifestyle. The family church which has faithful husbands and good behaved children. We want to be marked by a love for God. The reason that the apostles could do what they did in suffering and still being able to speak clearly in the midst of suffering... Being able to speak without error. Being motivated to have parental love and sacrificial love and exemplary love. Came from the experience of the gospel themselves. Experiencing the love of God for them. We need to recognize that the gospel, Jesus Christ, is the center of all things. So when it is that we pray for ourselves, when it is that we pray for our ministers, when it is that we think about the motivations for why we are doing what we are doing, because it is not easy. It is not easy to be a faithful church member, neither is it easy to be a faithful minister. Every time we are reminded, or rather every time the question comes, and it has come to me many times, and hopefully I am not the only one here, I am not sure if I am hopeful that I am the only one here, but when it is that we, we... think about why it is that we are living the life so that we live we need to recognize it is for a greater hope the gospel of Jesus Christ is glorious enough is powerful enough is worthy enough of this type of response so my encouragement to our to ourselves at CRBC is to love on our pastor, to pray for Chris to pray for Pastor Lee, to pray for the deacons in Toronto, to pray for our own local pastor, Pastor John to be grateful for the faithfulness that we see being displayed before us and not to take it for granted. We are a small church, we have a lot of growing to do and thank God for another member to be added today and hopefully by God's grace a week hence. And we need to be thankful that that is happening. It is not always that God in His providence chooses to give us blessings. Sometimes difficulty happens. And for the times that are to happen, maybe, probably inevitably, for difficulty within this little small church, we need to be reminded about, about why we do what we do. Why is it that we come here every Sunday? Why is it that we are okay with just having a pastor who just preaches the Bible and not innovative at all and doesn't do any fancy tricks? We need to be, to be reminded constantly of why we are doing this. It is the gospel. It's because the word of God is faithful and that it is enough. It is enough. That is all we need and that is what we have. I am so grateful to God for the ability to be a part of a church that we were praying for for years that doesn't seek to be innovative, doesn't seek to, to have all the fancy bells and whistles. And I'm prayerful and I'm hopeful that 
we do not grow weary of it. I'm grateful and hopeful that our pastor doesn't grow weary of the consistency of having to just do the same old, same old. Let's put your word and be faithful to it. Let's love on the people. Let's care for them. That's all the Bible asks him to do. And we should not ask any more of him <laughs> as the church. And we should be grateful for him. So, again, I just want to thank the pastor. I want to thank God for the church. And I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters in Christ who have sought to join themselves to such a church. That are not attracted to the bells and whistles of the world. Not attracted to the seeker-sensitive model. Not attracted to the Finian ideologies. So I thank God for you. And I hope that you're blessed with the word of God today. Amen.